enter if you dare this ghastly conversation of teens fraught with despair and recent lacerations. Final girl, chase after her, don't let her get away. But first, the slumber podcast massacre. Welcome to Slumber Podcast Massacre with TNA. Hey, that's Tim. Hey, that's Andy. And this is a podcast about horror. Every week, Tim and I get together. We talk about a different movie from the horror genre, from your well-known classic, down to that rare gem that's confessing its bisexuality to Rolling Stone <laughs> at the back of your video store shelf. I knew that was your one of your favorite My lines. Favorite. I had to do that. Before you got to do it, yeah. I had to do it. <laughs> I'll still do it. Uh, this week... Tim and I are revisiting what I think is the quintessential thing from the 90s, from 1994, Natural Born Killers. Tim, what's the, what's like the trashiest TV you'll watch? And I, now let me be clear before you say Riverdale, I don't mean (laughs) bad TV, I mean trashy TV. Sure. I was working one summer as a painter at our local university and uh, we weren't paid much and we gave the amount of work and dedication in kind. Right. Um, And a good chunk of our time was either spent maybe painting more likely having uh, masking tape races rolled down the uh, sure. the halls as we just checked off dorm rooms and said that we painted them, but didn't actually. Um, <laughs> but at that particular time, at that particular summer, it was still when Jerry Springer was on and it was before the fights were either induced or completely faked right yeah it was and it wasn't a fight his bodyguard became like a household like his head of security yeah steve (laughs) right for people do steve's name no personality steve which fit when he was just his own show did you know that's the thing oh my god yeah when he was just silent like bald big steve like that was fine you know we all liked him but um and and the thing was because it was still real, like it wasn't a fight every episode. Like it, it wasn't every single episode that somebody was going to throw a chair or whatever. Right. It was like maybe one out of five, but uh, one out of five or six. But when it did happen, it was real and it was awesome. And I guess the best part of it is, as I'm sitting around with these other guys, that we were really feasting on, like the humanity at its worst right and we loved it like literally we as a species have not changed one iota (laughs) since the gladiator times in ancient rome right we we still love the carnage and uh which is you know a lot of what this movie is about but um yeah a a good old-fashioned retro jerry springer yeah um just jerry springer did you like like Oh, I like Morton Downey oh, Jr. Oh, Morton Downey Jr. What a, and he was just a any talk, like the talk shows of the early late eighties, early nineties were just fuck, man. Well, not and, only were there a hundred of them, and they were exploitive in in sort of the best way. Before it was kind of like now. Here, I just said that thing about we're exactly the same as like Roman Gladiator times. We've evolved a little bit. I will say a lot of that is for good. But we did lose a little bit of fun along the way because yeah. I remember a Geraldo episode that my dad just happened to out of the grace of 
whoever uh, recorded on videotape on VHS an episode of Geraldo where it was all about Tourette's syndrome <laughs> before anybody had ever heard of it before. Right. So it was still okay to laugh at. And oh my God, it was hysterical. Like he had a line of like 15 of them on the stage. Yeah. And I think one, I remember this one. One guy would just like shoot out his arm, like in like various, like <laughs> strong defiant directions. And then there was like this 14 year old girl who um, is seated next to an African-American gentleman who is in uniform uh-huh. and like doing his best to try and like be in the military and carve out a life for himself. And unfortunately, some of the other people up there could not help but throw right. out some racial slurs. Yeah. And then even the 14-year-old girl gets in on it, in on it and she just goes, drop it, give me 20. <laughs> like, it was hysterical. And, uh, I mean, not to laugh at people that, that have these, these painful afflictions, but that was the thing at that time, whether it was, you know, Tourette's or it was Satanists or it was these club kids that go and party on, on drugs for, you know, days on end. Like, there was no filter as far as, should we do this? Right. Should we display this for the world to see? And it wasn't even a question of should we. It was the crazier that it is, get it out there. Yeah. Which God, was, I said early 90s, but man, that shit was like mid 80s yes. almost because they Weird Al did a parody of it in UHF. He does like a town talk with George, which is essentially was the Geraldo show at the time. Yeah. Uh, when he got his nose broken, there is a bit at the end. And he, like he even like the the little bu- he does like a fake bumper, like lesbian Nazi hookers. Like <laughs> I, I can't remember. I wish I could remember the whole stream. But and then he just like a chair comes flying out and just fucking nails him in the head. Well, yeah. And and they were just ridiculous. And we were so naive that we were still buying into things like everybody knows or most people know about that that famed and and faded Geraldo special where he went into Al Capone's vault only to find a couple like dusty wine bottles. Yeah. But like, because they were getting nowhere, but it was like a live hour special. So, or like two hour special. So they had to fill up the time because they weren't getting anywhere. They weren't finding anything. There was no bodies. There was no, you know, weapons or or um, yeah, a ledger that was like, here's how I stole all this money. Right. <laughs> now I laundered money. Literally nothing. There's basically like if you've ever bought an old house that had like a canning room in it, that's what they found. They found your house from 1910. So many people right now are like, uh, yes, <laughs> yeah. the canning room in the home I bought. Yeah. Will that sell? Can I still film my canning room for money no because he ruined it for everybody but yet they intercut these like when they didn't have anything juicy to show they just show like like here's the gun that they would have used at the time like a tommy <laughs> right, gun right. and then it just has here's what we hope we find <laughs> it has Geraldo in like slow motion like shooting this tommy gun like all <laughs> macho style like it's absolutely fucking ridiculous oh god but we ate that shit up and um yeah, what a time to be alive. It was it was still a time where the internet had not taken over and people could not as clearly judge what was absolute garbage or not because when you only have a few options it's like, well, I guess Geraldo shooting a machine gun in slow motion is good TV. Right. Cuz there's nothing else on. No, yeah. Well, yeah, cuz we started getting cable and 
Got to fill that time with something. Well, they can only show Swamp Thing so many times, <laughs> right. you know, over and over and over again. Um, but no, that yeah, I that whole trash TV. But I'll tell you, you bring up a great topic, and it's something that because we have – it's funny. At work at my office, we moved into a much bigger space in the building. And the owner of the company was like, I don't – he was honest. He's like, I don't know what – art is or paintings or anything like that. So he just went out and bought like 10 big screen TVs. So it's just littered all over the, like wherever you go in the office, there's, there's media happening. And what's playing on that TV. Well, in the, well, I I already can guess what's playing on. There's only one person. There's only one reason a person who owns a business buys a TV and it's to show Fox news all day. Uh, yeah, or new, we got Newsmax. Oh, Newsmax, uh, yeah, oh, even got, better. Yeah, oh, good. Oh, good. Oh, yeah. Um, but uh, but also, hey, there's some Jeopardy. Like at at <laughs> yeah, three o'clock, there's Jeopardy. Um, but uh, but no, we um, we have that stuff on the TV. But in the break room, it's always Maury. And oh man, now I remember a quote. Still going. Absolutely. Everyone else, because yeah, if you don't know Maury. From the 80s. Like, he had a show in the 80s, Yeah, he's got a face like a roadmap for a reason. Like, I mean, (laughs) the guy is old, and he's been around for forever. And he's just kind of this casual observer in his own show. But, I mean, he's I guess he's good at what he does. Here's what haunts me at night, though. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix one time said that he thought that the best actors were the actors on these reality-type, like, talk shows, like Maury. And when I watch the show, like the Who's the Father show, okay, Are You the Father, um, you look at it and you're like, either these are the finest actors that the world has ever created, uh, but but the first, the initial instinct is, well, of course they're not. I mean, they're they're just common people. But here's the thing. If you've ever been an actor, if you've ever been on stage, especially if you've ever been on a television set. These people are so unfazed by being on a stage in front of people, in front of a live audience, that it almost makes you wonder, like, normal people would not be, like, instantly comfortable, like, just walking out onto a tv set yeah the way that these people are so i'm like well but those producers are backstage riling them up being like hey don't hold your emotions back like if you're mad go ahead and yell it's okay like they're not like try and get in a fight but they they will subtly be like you should fucking fight that guy let me see that show let me see the backstage <laughs> right? with these That'd like a great show he's like iago's but like that would just... ruin all the other shows <laughs> yeah of course yeah. unfortunately or yeah. fortunately yeah. Depending on your viewpoint. <laughs> but um, but no, that's it's fascinating. And I'll tell you what what you and I have talked a little bit about it before, like where that veil did get lifted, I think I'd like to think completely is at least in like reality shows as we knew them, like the real world or stuff like that, where I'm sure maybe the very first time they did it, there was some real reaction in front of those cameras. But the truth of it is, is that after you've seen that and you've seen people get famous from those shows and then you go on that show, you can't help but be adjusting your reactions to things. Right. And reacting in such a way that is acting. But people think that they're seeing some sort of reality. Yeah. It's not at all. The only it's- time I've really ever seen one of those where I'm like, those are actors. There was one where it was a guy who was meeting a woman that he'd been talking to like over whatever fucking hotlines we used to have or whatever maybe it was early internet chat rooms or whatever 
And, you know, they finally come out and meet and they're like, well, I hear you actually have a secret. And, the, you know, this woman is like, well, I'm actually a guy, you know, and the audience is like, oh, and there's like a big pause. And the guy's just like, well, I'll try anything once. Uh, and then they start making out. And I'm like, eh, that seems fake. That yeah. one seemed fake. If you want very funny, see, it was a very funny clip. If you want to see some real craziness that is real, and maybe it's not to the extent that you'll see on <clears throat> some of these more like sculpted and, and pieced together reality shows, but dig up some old love connection videos. <laughs> Man. Um, for those of you that don't remember, there was a game show hosted by Chuck Woolery. Um, and it was about uh, somebody would come on and then they would watch a video that three people had made, and then they would decide which one they'd like to go out on a date with. The audience would also decide which one they think the person should go on a date with. And sometimes the person would say, I'll leave it up to the audience. Sometimes they'd choose themselves. Well, it was if if the if the audience picked the same person they picked, they would pay for another date with them. Oh, that's right. That's that was right. that yes. was the big prize. Yes. No, that's true. Um, but yeah, you will see now, granted, don't get me wrong. Anybody on that show, like pretty much any person on a game show is in Hollywood to become an actor. Just, I hate to ruin that for all of you, but that's just how it is. And all the people in the audience, there are a lot of like dating games where you look back on them and be like, Oh, I know that guy. John Hamm was on. uh, Oh, was he? Yeah. He was on. um, What was the one? It wasn't love connection. It was the one where that was the dating game. No, was that the where the people are on the other side of the like divider? Uh, yeah, that was the dating game. The dating game. Yeah, yeah. he was on that. Okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're just um, actors. Yeah, there are some great moments from that though. Like, isn't there one where they said like, "There's that famous clip where it's like, where's the strangest place that you've ever made yeah. whoopee in the butt? In the butt? <laughs> yeah. yeah, God bless her. <laughs> yeah, expand your horizons, lady." <laughs> That's the strangest. Oh, you're right. <laughs> yeah. You've got ears, don't you? <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. So um, interesting. Any interesting. trashy TV today you watch? You know. Real quickly so we can talk about yeah, this movie. Right, right, right. Um, well, what? What? Okay. So so we took out. You you disqualified Riverdale, which yeah. is fine because I get what you're saying. Yeah. But what, what yeah, would that's like people work on? But that. what would qualify as well, trashy? I think TV any today? any sort of reality TV today is probably your trashy shit, your Kardashian stuff. Uh, you know, Vanderpump Rules, any type of uh, you know the that Hulk Hogan show, any like scripted non scripted. You know what? I guess I the like, only what? Hulk Hogan bought an alligator. We better get that on film. <laughs> the only thing. That I, um, well, the one thing that was so crazy to me is when I saw that, like, all of those Duck Dynasty guys are, like, totally clean cut, like. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, the whole thing was fake. Like, yeah. throw the beards, throw on the camouflage. Um, but the only thing that I've even What's not seen, fake? Their love of Christ, Tim. Yes. And how they think I like you how I like that it's obey. not their love of Christ, but their love of Christ. <laughs> Christ. Um, but. The thing is, uh, I don't I go out of my way not to watch those shows only because I can't I can't get entranced by them anymore because <laughs> I know that they're fake. But I have been like forced to or or just it happens to be on the TV, seen some of the um, real housewives at work or at your house uh, at my house. <laughs> uh, not 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 in a while, uh, thankfully, but it the uh, like the real housewives. Yeah, episode. I can't stand that shit. 
I just can't. I, I, I can't because of exactly what I'm saying, that I still feel like it's so fake. I don't even know what you would have to do to make it real anymore. Right. And I'm, I'm like, are these people like friends? Because all they do when they get together is yell at each other. Right. So did they do they know each other outside of this show, or is the show just specifically like, let's get you all together at a brunch, and you can yell at each other? And make no mistake, by the way, I think I saw that episode, uh, unless they do that a lot, <laughs> they which do they probably do. <laughs> well, yeah, it's never, you know, it's a brunch, or it's a horseback riding, or, or you're having it's a trip to Cancun. Yes, yeah. it's a, yeah, it's a, a white dinner party. Why did you wear red, you bitch? Right, yes. <laughs> um, I... You know, I just don't know if there's anything I well, let's put it this way. I shudder to think of what it would take to make it real now. Yeah, because you'd have to go to some pretty extreme measures. Um, yeah. I also should make it clear. I don't fault anyone for watching those shows. I have people I love who watch those shows all the time. They don't watch them because they're like, wow, this is good shit. Like I'm busy all day and I turn this on because it's garbage. And okay. I can like look at my phone while it's on. Would you call trash TV my 600 pound life? um i don't i've never seen it but yeah probably yeah because it is kind of like i've i've watched that i um that's kind of crazy like the people that like the thing is they're so overweight that they have to like actually lose weight to even qualify for the surgery (laughs) yeah so um it's just nuts uh the amount of skin that can come off the human body (laughs) holy god you wouldn't believe it but um, just the amount it can produce, is right? Insane. Yeah, <laughs> Malcolm McDowell's character from Cat People would just have a field day. <laughs> um, but no, I, uh, I, I, I'll be honest with you, I actually don't watch a lot of of television anymore. Yeah, me neither. Well, good. I'm glad we brought that up. But we do. <laughs> <laughs> what a fertile topic. Um, but you know what? We do watch sometimes. Movies? movies yeah yeah let's talk about this one tim it's from 1994 it's natural born killers let's get through the wikipedia facts now this is a lot a lot of misconception a lot of people are always like oh that the movie quentin tarantino wrote initially yes so he gets a story credit yeah screenplay written by oliver stone richard rotowski and david veloz I don't. I didn't know how to say. I that. like it. That sounds good. Velas, Velas, uh, and it was directed by Oliver Stone. It stars Woody Harrelson, Julia Lewis, Robert Downey Jr. Not to be confused with Morton Downey Jr. <laughs> and Tommy Lee Jones. It had a budget of thirty-four million. It made a hundred and ten certified goddamn hit. Let's do Nan some uh, because she refused to watch this with me. Mickey and Mallory Knox love two things: murder and each other. Thrown together by fate, the two rage across the Southwest, leaving 50 deaths in their wake. They're being tailed by Detective Jack Scagnetti, a crooked cop with an obsession of sex and murder, and Wayne Gale, a scandalous tabloid journalist who has made the couple into celebrated killers. Eventually, they're caught and sent to prison, and after a year, are being transferred to separate psychiatric hospitals, but not before Wayne grabs one final interview with Mickey. Will we learn there is some redemption for the two based on their terrible past? Or were the two doomed? Jesus Christ! Or were the two doomed from the start to be natural-born killers? <laughs> I can't believe that you resisted the urge to make the other thing not mayhem. I <laughs> typed it out. <laughs> I knew it. Um, where to start with I don't know. this one? Because yeah, this. All right, first, I did. You know, I brought this up to a friend. He was like. <laughs> 
Is that a horror movie? Yeah. I mean, not in the sense of like it's scary. Um, people, but the idea people. of like, you know, uh, someone just stalking through the countryside killing people. Sure. Yeah. How's that not a slasher movie? Sorry. Just they, because I get a different perspective on it doesn't mean it's not horror. They don't have masks on and they talk a lot. So <laughs> right, exactly, uh, but other yeah. than that. Yeah. yeah. And, and the body count is triple the times of some of the films that we've covered. Exactly. So sure, you could call it horror. Um, I have no problem with that, because what else are you going to call it? I mean, honestly, what else are you going to call <laughs> right, it? Right, yeah. Um, Romantic drama? <laughs> yeah, it's like, you can't really call it an action. F- I mean, there's a lot of action, but it's yeah. kind oh, of like, some. It, there's like, like one action horror. scene with action, but yeah. It's about murder. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, let's call it horror. Um, Like you said, uh, originally written by Quentin Tarantino uh, at a time when he was not Quentin Tarantino, as we know him, and had to make some money and sold his script uh, to, who did he sell that to? Warner Brothers? Uh, I think. Um, I want to say it was either uh, Universal or Warner Brothers. Um, but, uh, he sold it for 10,000 and which I'm sure was decent at that time. Yeah. Um, and it was all, everything is above board here. There's no stealing from Quentin Tarantino. It was completely, um, agreed upon by both sides. He sold this, this script and that was it. And I, I did read the original script today. I, I skimmed through it. And while there is a large chunk of dialogue that is similar from, or not similar, identical to Tarantino's script. Um, the movie that we have in front of us now is is vastly different than had Tarantino made it, which yeah. he wanted to do. He just couldn't raise the funds. Right. So he ended up just selling it. And so Oliver Stone gets it. He kind of hears about the script floating around. He reads it. He likes it. And really, and nobody disagrees with this, reconstructs the script to such a point that, yeah, Tarantino really... I mean, you could give him a co-writer uh, credit if you wanted to. It's not yeah. that far off, but it's it's such a different film, especially since we know what the kind of movies that Quentin Tarantino makes. Right. It's such a vastly different film than it would have been if he had made it. So, yeah, it's fine. Just give him a story credit. Yeah, this would have been a very I mean, there's there's a part of me that wants to see his version, but there's a part of me that's glad he didn't make this movie because I love what this is. I mean, I love his other stuff but yeah because he focused more on wayne gale didn't he in his script a lot of it was like wayne gale was sort of the kind of narrator or kind of like the central character that that wove everyone together yeah there was a lot more court stuff there was a lot more like judge stuff it was it kind of went back and forth between courtroom setting and then like them on the road okay so it's kind of almost like flashback style. Oh, okay. And um, and yeah, an interesting movie, sure, but it would have been more of a. You mentioned True Romance when we were talking about this. It probably would have felt a lot more similar to that, like yeah. kind of like yeah, they're killing people, but it's more like look at these two; they're so in love. They happen to kill some people along the way, but it's really more of an adventure road movie, <laughs> right. and then they get in trouble for it. So that's really what we would have had instead. We get this far more complicated and complex movie that, like like Oliver Stone said, he's like, I couldn't make the movie that was on the page because what was on the page 
was what a first-time 26-year-old filmmaker would have made. I was a 47-year-old filmmaker. I'm Oliver fucking Stone. <laughs> right. I'm 47 years old, and I'm going to... I'm going to... I've made, like, fun movies before. I want... I need a little bit something more. So that's where he digs into the layers of um, what what he obviously considers the evils or the influence at very least of media. Uh, and also the psychology of a, a mass murderer. Um, but it's hard to know what the real quote unquote star of this movie is, because where do you begin? Is it the, the chaotic cinematography? Is it the actual cast itself that as you read off is loaded oh my God. with so much talent. Yeah. Um, is it just the story itself? It, it's it's hard to say, but the whole thing made up what felt like an atomic bomb that just dropped on us in the mid nineties and none of us were ready for it. Yeah. Just watching this, I, I mentioned this to you earlier, but just watching this. Cause it like when the movie starts holy fuck so many dutch angles and i like within the first 30 seconds i was like oh man that's okay i get it uh is this not gonna age well and then by the time like they've killed everyone in that diner and juliette lewis is like ooh, like walking up spooky to that guy i was like oh right this movie fucking still rules yes and i was like it is I'll say it. It's the quintessential. It encompasses the nineties. And if a, if a piece of art, if you were to like, give me a piece of art, that's like, this is what 1990 was. Boom. Here it is. Absolutely. You've got crazy frenetic editing, uh, weird camera angles, uh, bad guys who win, um, saturation of color. Yes, and light. Yeah, yeah. Just like everything's over the top X, X dash tream (laughs) (laughs) everything Um, yet done by uh, one of the better filmmakers of our lifetime. Absolutely. Yeah. And so it's not just like Mick G doing just like, I'm doing cocaine and let's do this crazy movie. (laughs) Yeah. Like there was for as many, it was like 3000. There's like 3000 cuts in this movie Uh, as chaotic as it seems. There is still a complete plan to it. Sure. And it's not like the, the cuts aren't there. Like there's a very famous, uh, well, I guess I, I should say infamous scene now uh, that comes up a lot. It's from Taken 3. And it's just a scene of Liam Neeson jumping a fence. And Tim, I kid you not, there are like 25 cuts just in this. <laughs> yes. So it's, but it's not like that. It's not just like, here's just bad editing to cover up whatever else we couldn't get. Like ev- everything in this is with a purpose. Yeah. And, and the, the chaos and what you mentioned that, that Dutch angle or, or Dutch tilt, if you've ever seen an old sixties Batman episode, yeah, Batman. you know, every time they show a villain, a, yeah. it's going to have that tilt. And it's just meant to do exactly what you would think it was, it would be, would, which is to inspire a, a sense of disorientation in the viewer, which, which it does. And not only do we get that, but we get the tilts, we get the, the switch uh, the abrupt switch between uh, black and white and color. We get the infusion of animation and, and all of that was meant to create that sort of chaotic 
style that Oliver Stone was really attracted to and where he was seeing a lot of it was in the vitality of Indian television from, from India mm-hmm. and also MTV. And I remember years and years ago, uh, Dennis Hopper was on some sort of MTV movie awards and this probably was in the nineties. And he said that for the last, like, you know, 15 years, uh, video music videos had been kicking the ass of the film industry as far as like showing innovative filming techniques or just taking chances and, and making images and footage that, that people were were attracted to. And you couldn't, I mean, you've got three minutes to, to grab somebody's attention. So you're going to, you're going to throw everything at them. And so that's kind of what, Oliver Stone was going after was that sort of uh, frenetic, chaotic, quick cut MTV style of filmmaking, but he takes it a step further into areas that I'm not even really sure how to describe in, in words. There's a lot of, if any of you are familiar with the clockwork orange, part of what makes that movie so neat is that sometimes it feels like, and it's honestly probably for budgetary reasons, but some creative choices that just feel silly and crazy. But like when, when all of the droogs are riding together in the car, but it's just a stationary car. Right. So we get a lot of that in this movie. There's a lot of that stationary car guys underneath it. Yeah. But it's way more exaggerated in this on purpose. Yeah. I think in clockwork, maybe it was just kind of like that's, that's the limits of the technology they had. Yeah. But in this movie, What's so great is that with a, you know, the budget that he had, it wasn't like there was no money. It wasn't like it's a low, low budget film. But the fact that he made the choices that he did to kind of infuse this sort of low budget feel to it, kind of like those very, very early 80s music videos that had no budget. um, You're just watching it and you're like, man, any lesser director could have made this movie and it would have been half of what this is. And he's even doing it with like, it's not because he's got, you know, giant explosions and, and um, computer graphics. It's that he's making these weird choices to do things in this really DIY way uh, that it's like, you don't have to have people like running in place like alongside of a car that's stationary, but he's choosing to do that. But it, it furthers that disorientation it yeah. furthers that sort of i'm guessing what he would describe or what i'm guessing that it's what oliver stone thinks that the thought pattern of a a spree killer might be that it that things are just chaotic because wouldn't they be i mean if you took a second if you were a spree killer and you could just slow down for a second right you might be like maybe i don't kill yeah, anybody no. today but if your brain is just going, 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 and you're just working off of instinct, then that has to almost be how those people's brains work. Yeah. And he really explores that with continually throughout the entire film, flashing back to the motivations for Mickey and Mallory to kill. And so we really get these neat, quick cuts of these quick sort of almost um, buried, buried deep, deep uh, in the subconscious images uh, from their childhood that, that make them the people that they are, but it makes for a really cool viewing experience. Yeah. 
I will say, I noticed this time around, and maybe it's because I'm so fucking woke now, but, <laughs> like, it is it is really just Mickey running the show. Like, Mallory's not really a killer until she meets Mickey. Yeah. Uh, she's kind of a nice person in a terrible situation. Yeah. Um, uh, but it, she is, you know, she's completely dominated by him. Like, he, he runs everything, and she just goes from one abusive relationship into another abusive relationship. I mean, he definitely just the bits with the ring. Like he's like, where the fuck is your ring? You like, he sets the rules for those rings. Like here are the rules for these rings. He does the, the wedding ceremony, right? By the power invested in me, in my, as God of this world, right. That you Mallory get to be a part of, which comes from, as we see in, in these flashbacks, it done it with rear projection, whether it's through a, a window or it, in these really, really neat and inventive ways. We see that a lot of that probably comes from the majority of his direct abuse coming from his mother. Yeah. So he probably feels very threatened by women and very intimidated by women and therefore has to assert himself so as to not be hurt the way that he was as a child. I'm not excusing it. And I can't imagine his, even though we don't see like his dad abusing him, he did fucking blow his brains out in front of him. I'm sure he was not nice to him at all. That's one of my favorite, like a scene that has haunted me for oh, forever man. of just this headless fate boy but the headless body like oh, yeah. c- like just easing itself in the chair like just making a <laughs> slight adjustment with literally the head completely blown off so crazy um but uh but yeah it's it, and what you just said is is pretty insightful because the the movie itself is loosely based on the activities of Charles Starkweather and his wife Carol Ann Fugate, and they were, I believe this was in the 50s. I didn't even have to look at your notes for that. Yeah, I just, I, yeah, once impressive. I write it down. <laughs> and uh, he was nine, 18, 19. Um, he was kind of, um, you know, he had, uh, like, his legs were sort of messed up a little bit. He had an issue with walking. Uh, he had a bit of a speech impediment. He was angry at the right. world. And um, and often made fun of and that sort of thing. And he finds a 13 year old girl when they first meet. And um, I think she was 14 by the time they went to trial. But um, he's roughly 18, 19. She's 13, 14. And he goes, you know, runs into her somewhere, eventually kind of creates a very quick friendship, goes to her house, uh, kills her mother and father and two year old brother. Um, she was there. I don't think she killed her family, but he did. And then they went off together for a 11 day killing spree, killing 10 people and, uh, amateurs. So, and what's talked about is that it was really Charles Starkweather that was sort of like bringing her along and like, as they say now, like grooming her quickly <laughs> in um she's young yeah, it, yeah in uh in this sort of murderous spree and so much so that i think i mean she didn't go to jail for life she ended up getting out of jail at some point or other but um but yeah so i think that that tarantino knew about that and was using that as some kind of source material so you're exactly right that mickey is really sort of influencing her although she takes to it pretty well, well she goes along with it yeah And then, I mean, I can't imagine, you know, I'm sure it's a combination of just, you know, because her first 
kills are her parents, who are terrible people. Yes. I mean, let's spend a few minutes on the late, great Rodney Dangerfield shocking America. Not that like Rodney Dangerfield was like a clean comedian. Right. But he's just kind of like a goofy guy. Yeah. Right. And it's like, well, look at me. I'm a terrible. And then in this movie, he's like, I uh, can't wait to fuck my daughter. <laughs> right. You know, it's like you're like, whoa, whoa. And there's so much to like there because. Yeah. The way strangely. they play that scene up is genius oh yeah well it was for as much like absolute ass ripping that i've done on gene siskel on this show that i stand by (laughs) he not only loved this movie but he particularly loved that scene and it is my favorite part of the my favorite and i have some close seconds and thirds but my favorite part of this film i remember seeing it for the first time and i'll tell you what and not that it's about pitting people against each other, whatever, but if I'm just going to make a bold statement for myself that I haven't been as shocked and in awe and impressed by filmmaking as I was when I first saw the I Love Mallory section of this movie. Take your Wes Anderson's and your every, all, all the other darlings of modern filmmaking. None of them have impressed me as much as this 47-year-old man at the time did um, with this kind of send-up of late 70s, early 80s sitcoms yeah. to where like the film quality is different the laugh track that is really aggressive mm-hmm. um, and put it in the most perfect spots. Yeah. And, you know, just the weird sound effects. It is literally like it, it is sort of akin to if you've ever had a, a bad time on hallucinogenics. Like oh. there is a certain similarity to the like uncomfortability or the discomfort, I should say, yeah. of the whole thing. We should say briefly. This is a great movie to do drugs and watch. <laughs> well, you know, or if it's your first time, do not do that. <laughs> well, you're right. You know, you bring up an you bring up an excellent point that I, I have to speak to just because you just brought it up. Um, at the time that this film came out and at the age that we were, yeah. I personally was living a, an adventurous lifestyle at that time. Okay. And so while I liked this movie. There were parts of it, the like the more twisted parts, the the creepier or more unsettling parts felt that much more unsettling to oh, me yeah. because I was sort of living that adventurous life at that time. Yeah. Watching it now, all these years later, I was able to get so much more of the comedy out of it. Right. And uh, just have fun with it instead of being like creeped out because yeah. it's like, this is kind of my life. When I saw this in the theater the first time. It might have been the first time I got like really high. Well, not the first time, but it was just when I was like, I'll smoke pot. Sure. Uh, And I remember like being in the car. We had to drive to the next town over to see it and just being like, is this movie going to like freak me out? Like, how am I going to handle this? But that I love Mallory scene, wash that all away. Because I was just the the movie nerd in me was just like, oh my god, amazing! Like, just the 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 fucking transition from him because it's so gross. He's like, because we do get like your sitcommy kind of shots, and then you know the cuts to him just like grabbing her ass, and he's like, yeah, why don't you go up and get clean, and I'll come up 
and make sure you see how clean you are. See how clean you are. See how clean you are. And then that's ended with like the audience like, like the cheer (laughs) from the audience. And it's so gross. But and here's the thing about the movie. I'm going to say I'm going to go on a limb and say this is your favorite preachy movie of all time. Because this movie yes. is preachy, oh, but it's it not, uh, but you know, not like, I don't know. No, you're preachy. right. You are um, right. Because, but every, every scene in this movie is a commentary on whatever it's sure. doing. So sitcoms. Yeah. It was like, yes, sitcoms portray a, no matter what's going on, everyone's having a great time. Everyone's cheering and laughing. But meanwhile, in America, Fucking kids are being raped by their parents. Sure, not every kid, thankfully. Uh, but well, you yeah. know, there, but you don't. That's not represented on TV at all. Well, and until and HBO it, comes along, and it keeps that per, just this one particular scene keeps pushing the envelope because yes, you get that scene with Dangerfield being like super pervy and creepy and abusive, and then we get it even goes to that scene where. Um, you know, that uh, the wife is saying, like, you know, you haven't touched me in 15 years. Right. And he points to their their younger son, Kevin, and she just goes, you were drunk and thought you were in Mallory's room. <laughs> and so there's a joke right. in this And the kid's sitcom. like, Mallory's my mom. Yeah. And the danger field is like, oh, no, no, geez. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, speaking to that genius of Dangerfield, like, I guess just being like uh, somebody that is just very sensory, like uh, enthused as I am. It's not just how funny that dude is. It's not just how this is, like you said, kind of weird to see him creepy when we usually see him as sort of like bumbling or whatever. Yeah. But it's also like this great sort of that. He's like, oh, he's always the guy you want to hang out with. Like, I want to party with this guy. Yeah. The voice and the accent, like (laughs) the way that he takes syllables and runs them together. Like there is one section where it's uh. Uh, he says, I'm going to take out your eye and show it to you. But it's, uh, I'm going to take out your eye and show it to you. Show it to you. Show it to you. <laughs> it's so great. But it's like, he's so good. And um, and they're just throwing stuff in. They're just packing it in. Like, even when he's watching um, professional wrestling, wrestling, and he's like, oh, kill him. Kill the fucking Indian. Kill um, the fucking Indian, like, right? Like Oliver Stone's gonna, he's gonna wedge that right in wherever he can. Right, God bless him. And um, so no, it, it is, and the like weird, like super fast credits afterward. Like yes. it's, it is. If you grew up in a time where you saw, which would probably be like we're talking shows like um, this, like the Jeffersons popping, yeah. Like, no, more like the oh. Jeffersons, give me a break. Like those like late seventies, early eighty, like eighty one, eighty two. Okay. Um yeah, and, fish. Uh, yeah. And Barney uh, Miller spinoff. Right, right. <laughs> exact that was the one I was really thinking of. Right. <laughs> um, but no, it is and we're literally folks, we're literally just talking about one scene in this movie. I could talk about this scene for an hour oh, and a half. It's so good. And and even Gene fucking Siskel knew it. So <laughs> it, it's the movie is, it's kind of like, I'm trying to think of a place that I've been to um, where you walk in, like if you've ever been to a place, like maybe it's like a, an opera house um, or like a theater or for people that have been to like, I don't know, castles or something like that, where you walk in and the architecture and the interior design is so ornate, it's almost like too much. You're like this little corner 
has more like ornateness and detail than my entire house. That's what this movie is like. Right. It packs in so much sensory. Just it's 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 a, it's an overload. Um, but it's fun. Yeah. It's Even like Siskel a, and Ebert were like, and uh, God, props to Gene Siskel because Ebert was like, this feels like a movie you have to watch twice. Like the first time you're just going to be like, geez, what the fuck? But the second time you're going to watch it so that you already know like. The visceral stuff that's coming, so then you can sit back and be like, okay, what's it all mean? And Siskel's like, I did watch it twice. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I did that. And you're right. It's great. I hated watching that (laughs) that clip and seeing just how much he loved it. It just just broke my heart. But um, but yeah, it 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 had that much of an effect. And and I don't want to just you know, uh, reminisce or get overly um, nostalgic, but we really do have to very quickly paint the environment of the time that this came out because it was a tsunami of experimental film just pouring out. It was, yeah. I mean, like Pulp Fiction comes out two months after this movie comes out. Yeah. 94 was a fucking romance ride, man. Killing Zoe. um, Like, all things of, to do in Denver when you're dead. Yeah, all the yeah, just like and IFC actually being IFC uh-huh. and actually showing independent film, right? Which is the most ridiculous thing that they just kept the name and have nothing to do with independent film anymore. But um, but it was it was this weird time where there was this flood of creativity, and especially in film, and um, and we had sort of like. I think been saturated with the, it was kind of like when the music scene got sick of like giant arena rock and then in 20 minute drum solos and then punk came out. Yeah. So it was kind of like we had gotten sick of these big, you know, it, wonderful as they are like the star Wars and the Raiders of the lost Ark and all of these big budget, like adventure movies. And finally there were these, uh, these filmmakers that were just giving us like, I, I hate to overuse the word weird, yeah. but I mean, really, really different experimental stuff. And, um, and it wasn't necessarily like they were all young people. Like David Lynch wasn't young. No, Oliver Stone wasn't young necessarily no. at that time. But, um, but we just were treated as, as a generation to, to some of the best like chunk of filmmaking to be released at one time yeah. ever. I will say I, this is a weird Oliver Stone movie. Maybe not in retrospect, but at the time, because the guy was like pretty much known for either like some sort of like biopic or like period piece. I th- uh, right before this, he did uh, Heaven and Earth, which was a movie I'd totally forgotten about. His third Vietnam movie <laughs> starring Tommy Lee Jones. Right. Um, totally forgot that existed. But, like, even before, I mean, you know, he pops off with Platoon, then follows up with Wall Street, talk radio, which no one saw, everyone should, with, uh, what's that guy's name? Eric Bogosian? Yeah. Uh, Great movie. Born on the 4th of July, The Doors, JFK, and then Heaven and Earth, and then this. And then goes on, like, Nixon, Evita. Yeah, right back to it. (laughs) Right back to it, yeah. So it was, like, a weird movie for him to do. Um. And I wouldn't say anything in this where I'm like, ah, classic Oliver Stone. Like we, uh, I just re, uh, I watched uh, the the new Doctor Strange with my wife and our neighbor, 
And I made the mistake of like one time being like, oh man, that is so Sam Raimi. And then anytime anything spooky happened, <laughs> the two of them were like, there's Raimi, right? That's Raimi. <laughs> but he has a very distinct style, obviously. Uh, and I, not to say Oliver Stone doesn't. Um, but I don't know. To me, if I were to watch this movie, I would be surprised. Knowing that if you showed me his filmography and then we're like, he also did natural born killers. I would be like, why? Well, no, you make a good point because, you know, stone is really good at having these sort of quintessential moments where we see these sort of larger than life characters, uh, whether it's, you know, Michael Douglas in wall street or even some of the stuff in in platoon where like he's okay. And he's comfortable with just sort of like, like kind of planting his feet as a filmmaker in a scene yeah. and just letting the scene play out. Not to say that he doesn't incorporate more. I think after this film, he, he continued to incorporate more of these kind of like images here yeah. and there. But I mean, he wasn't, it's not like this is his, he's a one trick pony. No, you know what? Now that I say it out loud, I mean, a lot of things those movies have in common are the, Look at the look at the gross underside of this. Well, sure. And and he is kind of like Stephen King in that way. I mean, this where, movie is greed is good. I mean, murder is fine. Yeah. Well, murder and, is cool, I guess, is really what this movie is saying. Well, but sure. not really. Right. Or he's also not saying greed is good. It's it's ironic. I th- And I think what he's saying is and this is probably the most important point to make. At least it was to me is that Greed is good as from Wall Street for our younger. Right. Yes. <laughs> Greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Yes. Greed works. Um, but uh, they play yeah. that at work. What's that? They play that at work. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just to fire you up in the morning, just standing around the water cooler. Um but uh, but here's the thing. We can sit here and we can talk about the media stuff. And, and I even told myself before we recorded this, like, don't go off on your tirades about, you know, media or, or this, that or whatever. Because the truth of it is that as much as, like you said, there's hardly a scene in this movie that it, Oliver Stone isn't making some point right. about something. But um if I'm being completely honest for as much of that as there is, and there is a lot, I I do think that he's having more fun than he is trying to drive a point home. Like, or at, or at very least an equal amount. Yes. He's having fun driving a point. Yeah. Home. Yeah. There, because you can get wrapped up in it and just be like, no, listen, here's what I'm like. The news is bad. Okay. <laughs> right. Yes. So, yeah, no, I mean, there's no mistaking the point that he's trying to say that the media is evil and that it is a like you can. Here's the thing. You can live without watching the news. Yeah. You can literally survive without watching the news. The news knows that. So if you can live without it, then it has to serve things up in such a way to make you feel like you need it. Right. So they are going to promote fear they're going to promote panic they're going to promote a sense of urgency that makes you feel like well god i've got to tune in because i need to know what to do i need to know what's coming for me right exactly so it is they're they're just setting the play out or the 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 pie out on the uh windowsill yeah (laughs) and uh but but for our younger listeners that's something people used to do to cool a pie (laughs) 
Also, and if you were walking by, it was your right to snatch it off that windowsill and run away. Also, we had a thing called sun tea. Uh, your <laughs> mom rules. would put out. Yeah. Yeah. That needs to come back. I was just it's, thinking about sun tea the other day. That's so crazy. You know My what? My mom made that all the time. Why did I not continue making sun tea? Well, I just recently asked my mom, why, why go to the trouble to make sun tea when you can just make tea tea? Yeah. But she said that it actually creates a sort of milder, like flavorful, so good. but more mild uh, experience. Um, For our younger <laughs> listeners, sun tea is... You just get a giant pitcher, put like eight tea bags in it, with fill it with water, and set it outside on a sunny day. For our younger, younger listeners, <laughs> the sun is a star yeah. that... What outside is... <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, or or me on acid in the mid-90s. I mean, I could have used that explanation. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so... So the thing is, honestly, the the comedy in this movie, and I mean, I don't know. I feel like I feel like everybody has gotten to the point where they're willing to laugh at some crazy shit. Thank God for some of those comedies of what would be like the early aughts, I guess, like your Seth Rogen and stuff like that. I mm-hmm. think they made it okay to laugh at like you know, off color stuff again, right. uh, a little bit there. So, you know, the, the comedy in this is not, you know, knee slapper, have a good time, but it is like really over the top and you have yeah. to be willing to laugh in the midst of really bad. A shit lot of it's happening. just in the performances themselves. Yes. Like there aren't a lot of jokes in this movie, but just the, cause yeah, Robert Downey Jr. He's your he plays Australian, which is fine. The accent comes and goes. It, you know, he, it's not solid through the whole thing. That's like my one nitpick because I had to find something. Yeah, like I, you know, why do the Australian? I don't know. Like uh, Robert Leach was kind of a thing, or Robin Leach was kind of a thing at the time. So, and you know, apparently he had been hanging out with some Australian newscaster. Oh, okay. Um, so he was Just like, "Hey, can I?" He's like, "Can I do this?" Right, uh, Australian, which it's fine. Right, and um. You know, and then, yeah, you've got Tommy Lee Jones, which, like, yes, there is no prison warden that probably acts like that. But it's taking, like, what must be the makeup of somebody to be a prison warden and yeah. then just multiplying it by a thousand. I hadn't seen this movie in so long, and I am ashamed to say I completely forgot he was in this movie. And, like, even because I asked, you know. Our friend Eric was like, yeah, Tommy Lee Jones rules in that movie. I was like, who was he in in that movie? He's like, the warden. And I'm like, the warden? What the warden do? And then as I'm watching it, I'm like, it, you know, like a fucking tidal wave just is hitting oh, me. Yeah. I'm like, Jesus Christ, I've quoted these lines like so many times in my life. And they, I've just completely forgotten about it. I completely forgot he was in this movie. He's probably my favorite part of the movie. Did you notice Mark Harmon? No. Mark Harmon is uncredited. You can't even find him in the credits. Yeah. Um, but it's a it's a cool choice because there was in the mid 80s, mid to late 80s, there was a really great miniseries called The, the Deliberate Stranger. And it was Mark Harmon playing Ted Bundy. Okay. And it was it was great. He did awesome. So it was kind of a fun choice to have him play a murderer, but he plays Mickey. 
in that recreation where they pull up in the car and he's got kind of a buzz cut. That's Mark Harmon. That is Mark Harmon. Okay. Next to the blonde lady now that's really this, muscular. Now this is not a because uh, before we went on air, you were talking about Balthazar Getty, and I was like, he is definitely not in this movie. You're like, yeah, he's the kid at the garage that Mallory like starts to have sex with, and then kills. And I'm like, what? And I had to look it up. Sure as shit, that guy's Balthazar Getty. I always thought Balthazar Getty was the bald guy in uh in lost highway but that is robert blake <laughs> robert okay blake, yeah uh who has also I'm, killed people <laughs> yeah right <laughs> uh, himself a natural born killer uh but wow i i, I can't believe yeah. i missed that mark Harmon. Um, i mean this i would say i know what mark Harmon looks like i'm not confused <laughs> right what mark Harmon looks like and um, Guess I'll have to watch the movie again. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Hey, this is, oh God. I, and that's exactly what I was thinking when I was watching it. I mean, just the rewatchability. This, this is literally a series of three notes that I wrote in a row, in a row here. Uh, making violence fun, uh, exclamation mark. Uh, oh, this is fun, exclamation mark. <laughs> Oliver Stone is having a ball, exclamation mark. Like, it is a fun movie to watch like if you if you get past the what is going to be the the darker subject matter it is super fun and uh and by the way just not jumping around too much but hey it's a chaotic movie so we can do that as a fighter juliette lewis can throw a punch sure she throws a she has some fight scenes and she's got her elbows nice and tucked Uh and just real turning her wrist over coming straight out like she's (laughs) she looks like a badass um, but yeah, the movie is, is so much fun, but there are these very, very couple tiny moments and very few of, of some seriousness in this movie. My favorite one is because I love Tom Sizemore in this movie. Yes. Love him in this. And he, he's an actor that unfortunately got just eaten up. For our by- younger listeners, he was a actor <laughs> yes, in the 90s. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and and in the 2000s, he was a drug abuser. Right. Um, and he apparently now he's made his return. And, and um, but I mean, at that time, he was wonderful. And um, he tells the story. Now, I've never seen this documented for sure but what i do know is is that tom sizemore only got this role because he heard that oliver stone was casting it and he really wanted the part of skagnetti and he actually tom sizemore himself wrote a monologue for the character of skagnetti yeah and then chased down oliver stone in a bar and took him out to the parking lot and performed the monologue for him. And then Oliver Stone liked it so much that he's like, hey, I want you to work on this character with me. Let's let's do this. And that's what got him the job. Now, I don't know if that monologue was the monologue that we get in the film, but a very, very, very tender to the point of being almost tear-jerkingly sad moment in the movie is Tom Sizemore talking about the death of his mother at the clock tower from whoever that man, I can't remember yeah, his name right now. Name. Um, but the Texas what, yeah, clock tower. Uh, oh God, it'll, I, it'll come to me. But um, he has this, like they, they bring the music down a little bit. I think it's, I, I don't know for sure, but I think it's one of the like, uh, like uh, quieter uh, moments of, um, 
of some Nine Inch Nails music, some piano stuff. Um, that that uh, that killer was Charles Witt something or other. Uh, yeah, I can't find it. But um, I thought I had it up here. So he has this monologue about you know he's this like ego driven uh, detective and writing books about himself and. Just Skagnetti. Have you read my book? Skagnetti on Skagnetti. (laughs) Which is so great. Um, But he's so egotistical and he's asked by Tommy Lee Jones character, like, what's your fascination with serial killers? And then he tells the story of being a young boy and his mom getting killed uh, at that uh, at the clock tower that fateful day. And it's a gorgeous moment. And it's this moment of some genuine sort of tenderness from Skagnetti and some almost vulnerability. And it's, it's really a great scene. And yeah. Here, and, but, but the th- my point is, is that there's so because many, because he's also a murderer. We should say that <laughs> right? He, yes. uh, earlier in the film, he has a prostitute and just fucking strangles her. And I think that he strangles her to sort of like get inside the head. Yes. of Mick. He's got an obsession. Yeah. And he as to think the, this movie does Everyone in this movie is obsessed with Mickey and Mallory in in some capacity. The detective who's hunting them, the the journalist who wants to exploit them, the public who wants to be them. Yeah, but not really. Shame about those people who died. Right. <laughs> like I yeah. love that the guy's just like Mickey and Mallory rule. I feel bad about the people they killed or what you know whatever. <laughs> right. Says, yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. We have respect for human life. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Yeah, no, it's it's great. And that's uh, that's what's fun about it is that I think that you have to you have to just you have to compartmentalize. You have to go into this movie knowing that you're going to have a little fun with some some offbeat topics. And and there's enough humor to be injected in, in really in some of the funniest and smallest ways. There's a moment where Mickey and Mallory are getting married uh, to each other, their own little impromptu wedding ceremony uh, at this beautiful bridge that I believe is near Taos, New Mexico. Yeah. And, um, and there, there's some gorgeous cinematography. The Rio Grande Gorge Bridge. Yeah, just, just beautiful. Um, and they're, you know, they're kind of having a moment. They're sort of improvising their own vows. And then a car drives by and some people are like, Hooting and hollering, and in the middle of the vows, Mickey or uh, Mallory just yells, "Fuck you, God!" God. And then just turns around and goes, "I do." <laughs> like, it's it's hilarious, and and it's it's that kind of comedy that we get in this movie. It's that you know, I'm not saying you have to dig for it, but I guess my main point is that I've been trying to make for 30 minutes is that. I think that above all of the messages in this movie, I think above all Oliver Stone is having fun. Yeah. I, I, I have to believe that. Yeah. Because the movie is so fun. And just look at Robert Downey Jr.'s character. I mean, he is so over the top that you can't tell me that Oliver Stone is being like nothing but serious about his comments on the media. <laughs> right. Because if he was or then Tommy Lee Jones, right. a like classic curmudgeon. Uh, fuck, I wish I could remember the quote, but there is some hilarious quote of when he was doing, uh, Batman forever with Jim Carrey and they like met at a restaurant 
And just Tommy Lee Jones says something, says something about just like, I just can't endorse your buffoonery or something like that. <laughs> yeah. You know, and he's just, you know, he's so uh, no nonsense. And this is post fugitive too. Yeah. So people love straight, uh, you know, uh, hard nosed Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah. And in this, he's got that gross ass, like pencil mustache. Yeah. The fucking fifties hair style. <laughs> right. Uh, just the, the shit eating grin. Like, Oh God, he is so good. Is so quotable. Everything he does in this movie is awesome. Well, and you make a great point right there where it's, and we've talked about this before, like, when it comes to a script, the words are always on the page and it's up to the actor to, you know, bring those things to life and to live inside those lines and deliver them in such a way that you make them your own. Yeah. And the choices that all of these actors make with their line delivery yeah. is so fun. I got to I'm I'm curious if if lines weren't punched up because Tommy Lee Jones is in this part, because there are like his big shit from the fugitive, like is like from the trailer and everything. They like, I want to check every doghouse, farmhouse, hindhouse, doghouse and outhouse in that area. You know, is everyone's like, Oh yeah, Tommy Lee Jones. He can say everything like real fast, just real monotone like that and just get it out real fast. No problem. Yeah. You know, was that part written like this? And they were just like, well, we got to get Tommy Lee Jones for it. Or is it just like, oh, we have Tommy Lee Jones. He's able to do this. We can actually cram in more dialogue because there's so much dialogue. Like my closed captions could not keep up. With oh, him. no. Like just they're like, we're going to paraphrase whatever he's saying. <laughs> like We cannot keep up with him at all. <laughs> right. No. Um, no, you're right. I will say this. And I, I can't speak to it 100 percent because I again, I just skimmed that Tarantino script. But a good chunk of those bits are are in the original yeah. script. So I mean, yeah, I'd imagine the character is pretty similar. Like he's just a. So I I bet I hands would, on warden. I would guess that some of that stuff is punched up, but it also might have been kind of what you're saying, but sort of the flip side where it's like, even if it wasn't punched up because Tommy Lee Jones had the role, it was, they read the script and they're like, there's only one person that can play this role yes. and it's Tommy Lee Jones, <laughs> you know? Um, so one, one way or another, but um, yeah, the, the performances are just off the charts, but not to be forgotten in the mix of all of these hysterical and colorful uh, supporting roles. But Woody Harrelson, is just oh, yeah. Let's every line, leads for, for every minute. line that by Woody Harrelson is in this movie. He's in Natural Born Killers. Um, <laughs> every line that he says, even if he's intimidating somebody, even if he's threatening somebody, is just picture it like a marshmallow on like a a little metal rod just dipped in honey. <laughs> like it's just so sweet and and so like. I don't even want to say creepily charming. It's just that sort of like kind of like the kind of charm that we get from like a Matthew McConaughey, yeah. just that honey dipped Southern sweet, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's masculine, but it's in sort of like a gentle way. And it's just, it's really for lack of a better word, it's really sort it's very attractive. Like it's very, um, it's very, uh, it kind of lulls you. In, yeah, like um, it, it's very alluring, and and he's great at it. And 
you know, Woody Harrelson himself has some ties to murder. His father is a convicted murderer, uh, was a contract killer. Um, so that's in his actual blood. So I yeah. think I'd like to think that that is might have kind of colored his character a little bit. I mean, he. I'm trying to look at his filmography. It's crazy. Like he, he hasn't done a lot up to this. Um. Well, he white men can't jump. Well. Yeah, he, White Man Can't Jump he was, was probably his biggest thing. But he was bankable because of Indecent Proposal. Indecent Proposal. That yeah. was the one. And that was what the studio said. People like Woody Harrelson. He can do drama. He's going to be a bigger draw than Michael Madsen, which is who was originally going to play the role. And then you had uh, the studio saying, you and I were talking about this earlier. Uh, the studio was saying to Oliver Stone, we'll give you two and a half million and uh, to you as a, a fee, as your salary, and twenty million for a budget. If you go with Madsen, like we'll we'll go with it, yeah. or we'll give you five million and thirty million for a budget, <laughs> and that made up Stone's mind pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, but and no, thank what, God, because man, he also like he goes through so many cool looks in this movie. Yeah, I mean they both do. I mean I I think that's intentional as well like every single scene they're in a different outfit they have different hairstyle you know i'm sure it's some sort of yeah. like it could be anyone kind of a thing um yeah. but just the 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 white shirt with the with the gun the strap yeah and the slick and the pulled back ponytail yeah like that's sort of the opening scene yeah 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 uh yeah what an intimidating look yeah and then, and then he's just like, then I'm going to shave my head and I'm going to even look more intimidating. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And he's making all these neat choices. Um, he's taking his time, his time with these lines. He is, you can see how he has an effect on people that he, you could see how he could charm Mallory, even when he, in that. I love Mallory's segment where he's just standing with that grotesque pile <laughs> bag of, of meat, meat just dribbling out. out. The yeah, it's so good. <laughs> um, and uh, I think there might even be—I don't know for sure—but I think there might even be a how they make those like uh, figures now from movies that uh -huh. there might even be the bag of meat like figure that you can get. Um, but uh, yeah, he's just. Um, I know I, I've said honey dipped like five times. It just is that sort of smooth and like disarming. When he says, you ain't seen nothing yet. Yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And uh, yeah, like you can't wait. You can't wait. <laughs> right. And that's I think that that's part of the fun of the movie is that it's it's assuming that the entire world could fall in love with mass murderers, but when there are people like this, you can understand how somebody would, right. you know? And um, yeah, it's, it's just crazy that way that, uh, that they would pick the, and, and especially, and I, I, I want to touch on this for a second. I love how Hollywood loves like Hollywood is obsessed with white trash. Um, and it's the reason why, and he makes no bones about saying it in public, the reason why Oliver Stone cast Woody Harrelson and Juliette Lewis was because he thought that they looked like white trash. Yeah. And that they exuded that, that presence. Um, and whether it's this movie or it's California or, you know, cousin Eddie or whatever, like, 
you know, Hollywood loves the, the, the like true grittiness of the white trash aesthetic and, yeah. uh, and it makes for good film, yeah. you know, um, you know, there's a certain realness to it, but, uh, it's a different, fi- you know, it's a different American psycho is the other version of this, right? Of yeah. Like what well, here's, side. yeah, here's the affluent successful person with how they would go about killing people. Right. And, and the thing is, you know, they don't get to go on a rampage and they get, there's this whole kind of like seminal moment of, of the film where, you know, things are kind of aiming toward there being this big tell all live interview with Wayne Gale uh, for the Super Bowl, Right. Yeah. (laughs) They fucking, I know, did not remember this, but it's like literally like, congratulations, Dallas cut click. And then over to the Wayne Gale, yeah, yeah, over to the. American maniacs. Um, (laughs) They don't even get to like properly. (laughs) People cannot wait. And, uh, and it's, it's all kind of centered around that. Now I remember when Geraldo interviewed uh, Charlie Manson and it, it was fascinating because Geraldo sort of took this stance where it was kind of like, you know, you're crazy, you know, you've killed people, which he actually hadn't, but, um, like, you know, you're nuts and you're incarcerated and I'm not. So I'm going to lord over this interview and, and paint you as the nut job that you are. But he couldn't keep up with Manson. Manson was admittedly like he'd go off on these um, tangents about, you know, demons and angels. And and he'd get up and he'd dance around and he'd, he'd just say all these strange things. But you couldn't take your eyes off the guy. Yeah. And um he was such a magnetic personality and you know that we get a little bit of that in this interview. And, and I don't know, I don't think Oliver Stone is going so far as to say, like, I'm going to get in the mind of these people and try to justify why no. they think it's okay. Not that he's not trying, not that he's not trying his well, best. Yeah, to he makes it. them sympathetic, at least in a little way. Right. Like they didn't, weren't just one day like, I'm going to start murdering people. Right. And I think, I think what it is, is that, we have been as an audience introduced to the traumatic childhood. That is the real reason for, you know, the sort of buried subconscious reason for their capacity to kill. But in their minds, it's just kind of like, it's just really sort of like the animal kingdom. Like it's kill or be killed. Right. You know, it's, I know what happens to my survival works, right? When I was weak and, and my defenses weren't as strong, I was more vulnerable. Now that I do have more strength and I can defend myself, I'm going to use that. And the more that I use it, the better chance that I have for survival. Yeah. Um, Which is a, you know, it's not going to work ultimately, (laughs) you know, for a peaceful society. But, um, but I think that that's kind of what, stone might be getting at here is that there is no, and I mean, there is, unless I'm mistaken here, like no good person in this movie at all. No, I mean, (laughs) no. Yeah. Kevin, her brother. I mean, who knows, but (laughs) you know, like everybody is, it's kind of like if you put a spotlight on any given facet of any person's personality, you can find something evil to exploit, to put into the media, to twist, to do whatever. I even love how they played up how like there's, there's one quick bit 
because yeah, you've got Wayne Gale and he meets with uh, uh, Tommy Lee Jones's character. I can't remember his character's name. The Warden, you know. And it seems like they're on the same side, right? Like they both fucking hate Mickey and Mallory or think they're gross people or whatever. But then you have a scene where they're like editing the show together before the big interview. And Robert Downey Jr. is like, put like a really fucking bad picture of like, get 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 this picture of the warden, like where he's laughing and his face is all like scrunched up on the side. Like even he is now being evil to him. Yeah. Even though they're kind of on the same side, just like, I'm still going to use my power. Make that guy look like a fucking idiot. Right. Well, and and then on the flip side of that, you've got, you know, when the chaos is all broken out in the prison, which was filmed in uh, uh, Joliet. the Joliet prison yeah. in, uh, near to to our uh, recording studio. Um, <laughs> and uh, you've got this great scene where one of the uh, the prison workers, the guards is, a, you know, kind of catching Tommy Lee Jones McCluskey. His yeah, character I love that. Guy. To I totally forgot about that. Guy. And he's saying that, like, so and so died. We lost this person. You know, we I think we lost Wayne Gale. And then Tommy Lee Jones just give this like, huh? like yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's not all that bad, you know. Um, so, great. yeah, there's just there's. You know, nobody has any sort of like overriding redeeming quality in this movie. I think it's just maybe it's just saying that everybody is a little effed up and it's just whatever the media decides to shine a spotlight on is what's going to be the bad thing of that day. Now, murder is worse than some of these other people. But um, but even like. I do love the turn. Sorry, go ahead. No, I I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just going to say real quick. Even like one of the more understated, and I don't even know how to put this, like when they're exploiting just like the vapidness of a Wayne Gale of Robert Downey Jr.'s character as this sort of expose media person, even when he is in his final scene and he realizes that Mickey and Mallory are going to shoot him yeah, or whatever – and he like doesn't know what to do. He tries to talk his way out of it, but then he eventually just goes into this weird like chant that isn't even like religious. Yeah, it's not even a chant. Just it's like, like one. It's like this. Oh, yeah. It's just this like primal, which is Kiana Scotsy. But it's kind of like he's sort of like thinking like maybe I should do something sort of religious, but he can't even think of anything. So he just goes, Oh, and it's, it's perfect. It's so hilarious. Um, that, yeah. Like, uh, I don't know. But yeah. I was going to speak to Wayne yeah. at the end of that movie, kind of the progression he takes. Cause I love it. Cause I, I won't get too political, but I do see a huge parallel as, cause as they're breaking out of the prison, right. First, he had like Mickey puts a shotgun essentially in Wayne's face. Yeah. And uses that to get out. Or no, he's already been going nuts before that. Anyway, as they're breaking out of the prison, he kind of hijacks Wayne Gale and his whole troop. You know, he's like, we'll bring some cops. You film it. Let's go. And Wayne is like getting into it. Oh, yeah. he's shooting cops. And he's like, oh, I've never felt more alive. This is great. This is great. And then at the end, they're like, yeah, well, you know, he's like, we're all on the same side, right? And they're like, no, we're right. not on yeah. the same side. And I could not help but think of the fucking idiots who stormed the Capitol who were just like, we're on the same team. I'm not going to face any repercussions for this. And then like, I, I'm, well, I'm going to prison. What? <laughs> right. Uh, I thought it was cool. Are, were we all having a good time? 
<laughs> couldn't help, I couldn't help but think of that parallel as that was happening. But I love that. Yeah, he's just like, fuck yeah, I get what you guys are saying. Now it's you, me, and Mallory, the three of us. And they're like, no, we're actually, we're done. Do you think they stopped killing after Wayne Gale? Um, well, there's that tiny little epilogue where they're riding in the uh, this like conversion van with their kids in the back. Yeah. And so he says he's like, because the Mickey is like, because he accidentally shoots an Indian who took care of them, mm-hmm. Native American, uh, indigenous Indian. person. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Indian is okay. <laughs> a real redskin. <laughs> yeah. There anyway, it is. Anyway. There it is. Um, no, but he, uh, you know, and he tells Wayne, he's like, that guy was going to be the last guy. Like, he exercised the demon out of me. You know, he then kills a guy at the pharmacy. I love at the pharmacy. There's just a shelf like snake antidote. (laughs) Yeah, that shelf sold out. (laughs) Um, But like, you know, and then, of course, they kill a bunch of people (laughs) leaving the prison. And then he's like, actually, you're the last one, Wayne. But so now he said, like, that I'm done a couple times. Do you think he was done? Uh, Yeah, I do. I do because I only, but, but, but for a specific reason, not because of what Mickey wants, but more what I think Oliver Stone wants us to think at the end of the movie, which is that I think that's why he shows us that epilogue of this family with all this kids, you know, driving around and little kids screaming and Mallory's pregnant again and all that stuff. I think what he's trying to say is that the people that you stand in line next to at Walgreens could be these mass murderers, but you know, they could just blend in with society, you know, that as long as there isn't that, that spotlight of media on them, that they could just be the, the family next door. Yeah. So I, in, in my heart of hearts, I, I think that that's what he's trying to say. Now, if we look at the character of Mickey, I'm not sure he could stop. Right. Yeah. That's my take. Is yeah. He's an addict. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't think he could. Um, I think that, and, and even Mallory for, for that matter, like when she shoots uh, Balthazar Getty at the, the gas station, I mean, Mickey's nowhere to be found. She's fueled by being upset about Mickey wanting to, to bang the hostage yeah, uh, or just throw her into the mix. Um, but uh <laughs> But she kills on her own. So I think both of them could have the potential to do that. Um, I like to think that they do stop killing. They have these kids. They raise them. These kids go off and do their thing. They retire and then start killing again. Oh, okay. That's what I'd like to think happened. Yeah, they're like, now that the kids are gone. Right. What are we going to do with some people travel? Some people remember when we used to kill people all the time. (laughs) We had so much fun. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Where's so, the spark gone? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I don't know. I, it's, um, <laughs> I remember one time, uh, when, uh, me, myself and Irene came out and there was a person of a younger generation than mine that went to go see it, which I thought that movie was hilarious. And they came back and, from the movies and I'm like, Oh, wasn't that awesome? Wasn't that hilarious? And she was like, you know, I just, I kind of thought it was making fun of people with multiple personality disorder. <laughs> I mean, seriously, she said this. And I'm I just like, that. my God, like, please just let yourself have fun at the movies. Yeah. I mean, I 
didn't think that movie was funny, but not for that reason. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I, and I won't go into it, but there is an outtake from that movie that is absolutely the funniest part of that entire film. How they cut it out, I have no idea. It's <laughs> hysterical. But um, anyway, I could see you and I have been talking for a few days now about, well, actually we've mentioned. Also, I can't stop thinking that I said Redskin. I just want to really apologize for that. I I can tell you as, as a member, I can, I can promise you, first of all, Indian is fine. It is totally fine. Indians call each other Indians. Uh, No, I'm just trying to be salacious. The whole native American thing came up from white people. So, um, it's totally interchangeable. And by the way, Indians call each other skins. So it's, it's totally fine. It's you're totally good. You're totally good. Um, so uh, you and I have been talking about why in the world this movie isn't more popular with younger people, the way that they will go back and find like movies or TV shows from 20, 30 years ago and think that they're so cool and great. Like yeah. I have, I see people like discovering like the X-Files for the first time and they're like, oh my God, oh. the show is so great. And you know, whatever it may be, but why is this movie not, does it, does it not feel like it's among that? And I'd like to think that it's not, I mean, it, it was from a time that was a little bit more fast and loose with, I guess, crude content or sure. whatever, but for all of the love of true crime and stuff like that out there, I think they'd be eating it up. That's true. Well, and I, I mentioned this to you earlier. I really think it's because we're still in an 80s nostalgia. We haven't gotten to the 90s yet. That'll be the next decade. We got to get through. Stranger Things? Yeah. Yeah, Okay. (laughs) Um, No, that's fair. And yeah, wait. Oh, that's tonight? Tomorrow? Uh, Tomorrow. Oh, man. Um, What are you doing this weekend? What's that? What are you doing this weekend? Uh, You know, watching Stranger Things? I swore that I would not watch it until I could watch it with my daughters. Oh, okay. Uh, But, you know, we'll see. They don't listen to the show, so it's (laughs) it's okay. Uh, (laughs) You're a good actor. You can be like, (laughs) what? Yeah. Yeah, but I, I'm going to overdo it, though. Right. I'm going to, like, fall off the back of the Th- couch. Throw something yeah. through your window? <laughs> right. Like, accidentally a second before it happens. Like, I just mistime <laughs> it by a little bit. that? That! that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, I, I think that, I guess if there's any one thing that I would want out of this particular episode, it's that whether you're our age and somehow missed it, I don't know how, but... Uh, or uh, somebody of generations younger, please watch this movie. Yeah. Um, it, it's, uh, it's fun. It is, it is. And we, <laughs> I was just talking with Nan uh, a couple nights ago about how we've kind of eased off on saying fun all the time. <laughs> like we did in the beginning. Um, I think I've switched that out with neat. I say neat a lot, um, but oh my God. I mean, like, Uh, it's what I've talked about before where I've labeled it like experience movies, like to where it's not just like, Oh, we went and we watched this movie. It was really good or nice or fun, but a movie that is an experience when you watch it. And and this is the dictionary definition. It certainly doesn't feel like it's two hour runtime. I mean, I'll say like maybe in the third act, like during the interview, you can be like, all right, this is getting a little slow, but it's like, you know, he's kind of like making his case at that point. You know, it's that, that part is about, you know him relaying his experiences and his motivations and his philosophy on life yeah and i don't yeah i don't and i'm and then it goes fucking haywire yeah and um 
Yeah, I, I think that uh, you're absolutely right. The the movie just flies by. God, what I wouldn't give. You know what? What we should do is, because you and I have both said that we're like ready to watch this thing again. Um, what we should do is try to find somebody that we know that hasn't seen this movie. Yeah. And, and probably knows nothing about it because it's not talked about at all. Right. And just sit them down and be like, check this out. Yeah. And uh, I'd just love to sit back and see the reaction. I guess we'll have to find someone. They're out there. I, I'm pretty sure. I'll let you do that. Yeah. I'll find, you I'll find our somebody. Community outreach. <laughs> there we go. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I wasn't, um, I, I think the movie has, for all of its chaos, for all of its madness, it does manage to slow itself down at some points that uh, I think that's the glue that holds the chaos together that there are like, even there's some, there's this one scene that almost feels a little bit outside of things because the fun dies down a little bit when there's a dispute between when they're on uh, mushrooms Mm -hmm. and Mickey and Mallory are having an argument Yeah, and they're just, they're lost. They're out in the desert and they're, they're really at each other's throats. And um, it's uh, it's a different tone than the rest of the movie. It's the first time you see him fight. Right. Yeah. And I think that, um, and uh, of course, all the stuff with Russell means, uh, you know, on the Navajo reservation and everything, that's, it, it It will take its little bits of moments to to take a little pit stop. It's it's not for very long and it's always still off kilter. Yeah. I mean, none, it never gets normal, but um, I, I don't want people that haven't seen it before to be listening to this and be like, Oh God, I just don't know if I can take that for two hours. Like, yeah, it's a lot. And it, and there is a lot coming at you, but it, it, it knows when to pull it back. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like nonstop murder and you get like a hatchet in someone's face and you know, yeah, good point. we're not talking like Tom Savini yeah. kills here. There, I, there are more no a number than, yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's, there's no gut munching, you know? <laughs> um, but, uh, but no, yeah, that's that's an excellent point because the really, yeah, you're right. the The violence itself is really not any different than um, yeah, it's a lot of shooting. Yeah, just lame. Yeah, and just something never caught on here. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean that's the one part where they get America wrong. But um, <laughs> <laughs> other than that, well, yeah, because none of the no, there's no school. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> so sad. Yes. Hey, it's we still, laughed. Still, we, like we not the saddest thing crying. that's happened this month. So. Yes. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> um, but no, it's uh, by God. I mean, just sit here and and say that the movie is worth watching is just—it's an understatement. It's ridiculous to yeah. say it, it's the like you. I, I think you make a great point that it is, and there are, are a lot of movies that could butt up right against it. But to say that what you're saying that it's the quintessential nineties experience. I think that that's right on target. Yeah. Oh yeah. And also we haven't even mentioned the fucking soundtrack to this movie. Yes. Helmed adds by, into the quintessential nineties of it. Helmed by Trent Reznor and of uh, nine inch nails. And it's uh it's a great collection of some songs from, you know, there's there's some older stuff. There's some newer stuff. There's really uh, it's a it's a nice eclectic mix. But rather than just being a, a collection of of songs that you've heard before, when the when the CD as we would have bought it at that time came mm-hmm. out, it was 
woven together with bits of dialogue from the film so that to sit down and listen to the soundtrack was kind of like a little mini movie of its own. And what's really funny is I even read some reviewer or a uh, 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 person that was critiquing the film and the soundtrack. And they felt like there was a better story told in the soundtrack than the movie itself. And okay. I'm like, I'm like, I'm not sure you could say that without having seen the movie, right. but I mean, it, it's a strong point to, to how cool it was because that really hadn't been around yet. That, that the soundtrack kind of had a life of its own. Yeah. Rather than more just, dogs did that, but they just cut in the radio bits. Yeah. The radio introductions of some of the songs. Yeah. But yeah, as far as like, here's a little clip from the movie. Yeah. And then it goes into the song. Dude, I'm seeing here. Adrian Brody was one of the cameramen. Really? Yeah. Uncredited. This movie had everyone. And there's some, yeah, there's some. Uh, Stephen Wright. Stephen Wright makes an appearance. Yes, he does. Who, yeah. Where he's like, do you think they were abused? I'd have to. I, no, no. <laughs> right. <laughs> the fucking easiest, easiest thing to be like, probably. And there is, you know what you and I, okay, I'm figuring it out now. You and I were talking about some scenes that we thought we could have sworn that we had seen versions of before, but you watched the theatrical release. I watched the director's cut Mm -hmm. um, and that yet there were still scenes that we were like, God, wasn't that in there? But if you look at the cast list, there's a whole shit ton of cast people that were in scenes that were cut. Like you, like Ashley Judd is in it or or, um, like, Oh yeah. Like, Oh my God. There's that. Yeah. I think we must have seen at some point and not a director's cut, but like an extended version. Yeah. They had all of the, yeah. yeah. The unrated version. Yeah. Yeah. We also can't not mention Pruitt Taylor Vince doing the eye shake. Yeah. That's right. Uh, uh, Edie, Edie McClurg. Yeah. From uh, Ferris Bueller's Day yeah. Off. And Carrie. And Carrie. Yeah. I was trying, <laughs> I was telling Eric, I was like, dude, 10 years separated. Like her playing a high schooler in Carrie <laughs> and then a 55 year old in Ferris right. Bueller's Day Off. Right. Crazy. All right. Well, there's, yeah. Here's the thing. There, we could. And we try oh, yeah, director's cut. Ashley Judd is Grace Mulberry. Yeah, because isn't that like a Manson type thing where they like bust into like a sleepover or something? I think so. Or yeah, something like that. Yeah, it's crazy. Like, and that scene the things is in, that are coming back to me now. And that scene is in the Tarantino script. Okay. Um. So they might have just filmed it and then just cut it out. I mean, they're already at. Like you said, the theatrical version is almost two hours. Yeah. But um, yeah, so we should see if we can dig that up somewhere. Yeah. But um, yeah, here's the thing. I mean, we could literally go scene by scene by scene and be like, wasn't that cool? Remember when this thing happened? Look at that crazy looking guy. Like we could literally sit here and do the most boring episode ever <laughs> just by like watching the movie and giving commentary and being like, whoa, right. oh my God. Even um, I'm looking at Dale Wrigley. Who has just shown a still photo? This is played by a guy named Ad, uh, Dale Die, who you would n- just if you saw him now, you're like, oh, I know that guy is like an 80 year old guy. Yeah, but before that, no, 
Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. He has to have like his white mustache. Then you know exactly who he is. Crazy. Dale Wrigley. <laughs> yeah, the uh it's um it is a whole lot of movie packed in and and one of the final thoughts that I wanted to to sort of leave on on my um my experience with this movie is just that when you see a movie like this and you see what's possible when you really let actors go and do their thing and you really take some chances with your your lighting and your cinematography it it just almost makes you feel cheated by so many other films that are out there that after you watch this realize take no risk whatsoever. Yeah. Whether that's creatively or content wise or whatever it may be, but even especially visually, like there's so much you can do with the medium of film. And this movie shows you, I mean, he's just, he's throwing everything at the screen. Mm -hmm. Oliver Stone is. And I'm not saying that every movie needs to be natural born killers, but it just shows you the potential. It's kind of like, I mean, all movies are two dimensional except for, 3D movies, <laughs> I guess. But, Which are still two-dimensional. They just right. have the appearance of a third dimension. Correct. Mm -hmm. But there, there are things that you can do as a filmmaker that give so many more facets to a product other than just the the two-dimensional formula that we're all used to. And I, I just hope that more people start taking more chances like that because it's it's been a while that I've seen a movie – that grabbed me like this. I'm not, I'm not even necessarily sure that there's ever been a movie that grabbed me quite like this particular one did. Yeah. I would say Pulp Fiction for me, but this one too. I mean, but these two, those two movies came out literally two months apart from each other. I guess in a similar, like they vein, are a binary star circling around each other of nineties. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, for sure. In a, there's a similar, there's a similar like sort of adventurous and um, kind of like, oh, God, like this is different vibe to both of those. But this one in particular feels more. Uh, I don't want to say dangerous, but it feels it's so sure of itself, but so loose in its construction that it's I don't know. It's like unlike anything else. Yeah, I do have a quick update on Tom Sizemore it actually came out. <laughs> he was working on a movie called Born Killers. Yeah. He may have molested a child. Well, I did I But it was the early 2000s and we were like, oh, I don't really have a lot of evidence. Get, get him back in here. But if you look at that case though, it was dismissed not once but twice. Oh, okay. And also and Tom Sizemore has come out and said like I am deeply troubled by the fact that any, you know, young actress or 11-year-old would ever feel that. He's like He's like, was there a time where the director for a press shot sat her on my lap and that she, you know, somehow felt uncomfortable by doing that? Then he's like, I feel terrible about that. But yeah, it has been dismissed twice. Yeah. All right. Well, good for him. And but and he did. He has made a bit of a comeback. I saw him on The Red Road, which was a maybe a two season um, TV show with uh, Jason Momoa before he really hit it big. I was uh, after. Um, oh, what was that show he was on? Uh, uh C the, the blind the no the show dragon on Apple Plus? one, the dragon one. Yeah, who? 
Oh, Game of Thrones. Momoa? Oh. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't remember. <laughs> I couldn't remember. Honest to God, I could not remember. The show I watched all of. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. The so. only dragon show in the last decade. <laughs> right. Jesus Christ. Um, yeah, after Game of Thrones, and actually Tom Sizemore plays Jason Momoa's father. Oh. And he is awesome. And Momoa even said that, like, Every single scene that he filmed with Tom Sizemore was an absolute just masterclass in, in acting, like yeah. just in awe of him. And uh, and I mean, he's I'll be honest with you, just so people don't get all worked up to be like, oh, yeah, I'd love to see Tom Sizemore again. He's kind of a bit of a shell of himself. Like the the the, the talent is still there, but his voice is like oh, very raspy right. now. He had shit with Heidi Fleiss. Yes. That was what is That was his was. girlfriend. Yes. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Okay. He also named Hollywood Madam Heidi Fleiss. He also had shit with Crystal Beth. So the actress? No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I see. Yeah, Robert De Niro personally checked him into rehab in 2013. Yeah, and then he was arrested in 2019 yeah. with various illegal narcotics. Various, right? Well, I'm going to guess California, not weed. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, because then they just say that. Well, then they wouldn't say anything at all. No, they just be like he was. <laughs> It'd be uh, like he was not arrested a good today. Time. Right. Oh wow, he's in Penn and Teller get killed. Oh, he's yeah. That's he's, a movie no one's. Seen. He's done some garbage. I mean, he's he's just that's paying some a, bills. That's a good movie. No, it's, I don't know. I don't remember if that's a good movie or not. But uh, yeah, he was in. He was on a, a tear there. I mean, saving uh, saving Private Ryan, Heat, Black Hawk Down, um, this movie. Yeah. Um, he was in True Romance. True Romance. Wyatt Earp. Yeah. <laughs> You know, White Herb. Everyone talks about White Herb. That was not, <laughs> right. I was thinking Tombstone. That is not, that is not that movie. That's the other movie. White Herb, that's Kevin Costner, right? I think so. Yeah. Well, we're covering it next week on the show, but yeah. Um, <laughs> There's shooting in it. No. No. What are, should we get to what we're covering next week? Are we done? You got anything else to say? Yeah, no. I mean, oh, look, I can't get to that part yet. <laughs> like I've, like I've said, uh, that there, there is that we could go on and on and on. I, Here's the thing. When it comes to these episodes about the movies that we like, love, 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 they they tend to not be like the like most laugh riot episodes in the world. But it's only because we feel so compelled to just send the message like, please, God, right, people yeah. understand how great this is. Not that assuming that they don't already. But um, but yeah, that's that's the main thing. And And we could go on forever. But I think that people know that we liked this movie. I recommend it. I recommend it. Cool. So it's Natural Born Killers from 1994. Uh, next week, uh, emergency, emergency episode. Uh, patron with a birthday. Uh, our friend Jordan. His birthday really is coming out when this episode comes out. Was it the 5th? Born on the 5th of July? Or yes. 2nd of July? I don't remember when. <laughs> I don't care that much. Uh, <laughs> I'm uh, But, uh, you know, we've... we've, uh, we've um, entertained uh, some of our patrons with a birthday show and uh so we asked him what he would pick thought we'd do it next year surprise we're doing it this year boom from 1988 it's waxwork a movie i know literally nothing about i know about it because as a teenager it was my introduction to and fascination with uh the marquis de sade okay um, it, when is this movie set? 
Well, it's it got piece? it's kind it, no, but it's it takes place right, in. Don't a, tell me. Okay, don't tell me. I don't want to know. <laughs> right. It's Does called the, wax work. Is the Marquis de Sade in it? He's in it. Is oh, he, he like sure a time is. Time travel. All right. Yeah, I don't want to. All right, I don't want to know. I'm already think Madame Trousseau's. Okay. Okay. His. <laughs> all right. <laughs> okay. So it's just a lot of people walking in, like seeing Arnold Schwarzenegger, and he's like, "Hi!" and they're like, "What?" <laughs> yes, that's it. Okay, perfect. Well, yeah, join us next week for wax work. Uh, uh, please, you know, rate us on Apple and Spotify and stuff where you uh, get your podcast. Check out our website, slumberpodcastmassacre.com. Send us an email, slumberpodcast at gmail.com. Check out our Twitch stream. I'll do something on there someday. Uh, we got a YouTube channel. We got a whole bunch of stuff. Thanks uh, to our patrons. Uh, you help make this show possible. And let us know when your birthday is. We'll do whatever the fuck you want us to do. Um. So yeah, next week, wax work, nineteen eighty-eight. Tim, do you got anything else to say about natural born killers? Patrolman Gerald Nash. I just had to get it out one more time. Dale Wrigley and his partner Dale Wrigley. Yeah, our friend Eric could do that whole. Oh, it's so and it's good. so dug because it's like like edited. <laughs> You could tell it's like different clips, but then jammed together to be a cohesive narrative. Uh, yeah. Yeah. When uh, when his partner gets shot, do you think it's he's really sad about losing the bear claw? Yeah, he seems like really upset with uh, the eyeliner and like the really shitty TV makeup. Yeah. My bear claw. Yeah. Oh, man. Okay. Oh, yeah, that's that. Oh, he does have uh, more of a speaking part. Than yeah. Me. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Okay. Well, um, yeah, I guess that's it. Tim, uh, fucking teach your boss about art. <laughs> Bye. Bye.